Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Your Book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm Daisy Buchanan. I'm the author of the non-fiction books How to Be a Grown-Up and The Sisterhood. Just in case you're new to the podcast, my first novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls, is available for listeners to pre-order from Waterstones in an exclusive signed edition. Insatiable is the story of Violet, a bored, lost and lonely 20-something who is seeking adventure and thinks she's found it when she becomes professionally and romantically involved with the glamorous Lottie and Simon. It's a love story with a twist. It's got sad bits, funny bits, and be warned, seriously filthy bits. Huge, huge thanks to all of you who have already pre-ordered. I'm trying to come up with a special treat for those listeners, especially because you've had to listen to me banging on about it every time I've recorded this podcast. Now to this week's guest... Jessie Burton's smash hit debut, The Miniaturist, made her a household name, and she has continued to dazzle her readers with thoughtful, challenging and complex stories. Her latest book, The Confession, has just come out in paperback, and it's my favourite. I think it's her best book yet. Jessie takes us from the 70s, literary Bloomsbury and glamorous Hollywood, to the present day, by way of an ordinary superstar novelist, her lover and one woman's search for her mother. So it was fitting for Jessie and me to talk about motherhood, creativity and time. We also discussed boozing in books, the bittersweet nature of rereading and how to share books with the people you love the most. We talk about Sheila Hedges' motherhood, which I read pretty much immediately after we stopped recording. So thanks for the recommendation, Jessie. Enjoy. Have you been reading in lockdown? Have you wanted to read? Yeah, I know that some people have said that, you know, it's been... um impossible to read um but actually that's like one of the only things I have been able to do so I have read not you know not loads and loads and loads because I've been working but um yeah I've I've been able to read which uh, I'm quite grateful for <laughs> I haven't been able to do much else <laughs> so yeah and um, what have been the the highlights have you come to anything that you might not have picked up otherwise or has anything taken you by uh, surprise yeah I mean I I let me have a look because I did write a list because I'm terrible for this like I um people ask me you know what have you been reading and I literally sound like the most illiterate author it's been quite varied so I've read um uh what's it called uh The Last Princess by Anne Glen Connor oh uh, kind of escapist jaw-dropping I cannot believe people live like this experience is that her lady-in-waiting book that's the one. I yeah, just read yeah. that at my parents' house and I, I have so many things that I want to talk about and ask you the weird sort of her insane the husband The marriage. Was, I mean that marriage. <laughs> the man being so awful he was banned from was it British Airways who banned him? Yeah, I think you yeah, I think it is British Airways. Um yeah, I mean I felt it was it was both sort of, you know, it's so fun in a way that kind of it's not even like the way the other half live. It's like the way this like tiny 25th live. I mean, it's just bonkers. Um, and I like that, the kind of outrageousness of it. But also, I mean, it's a tragic story. You know, she lost um, two sons. I yes. Um, but also I think this, this experience of essentially sort of being so inexperienced and marrying this man, Colin Tennant, who was so volatile and so damaged and you just think 
I just thought it was an indictment of the British class system, of the boarding school system. I was just like, this is, these are weird people. That part as well, where she goes to her mum to say, my husband is a violent, dangerous lunatic. And she more or less says, well, you, you chose it, your choice. You married yeah, him, you got... suck it up. Yeah. Did you read the Craig Brown book about Princess Margaret? I did. <laughs> yeah, I did. So I've had a bit, and I think it all came from watching The Crown. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I need to find a bit more out about Princess Margaret and um, I've had a lot of friends say to me you will love Mom Darling or Ma'am Darling and I did and then of course Lady Glen Connor she was the uh, Nancy uh, what's her surname who played Lady Glen Connor in The Crown she came to interview Lady Glen Connor to sort of find out about her life and then of course as she sat there and began to give her some insight she realized it was actually a very unique life that sort of ran parallel to the development of the 20th century and moved from this time where she said like it would take that was it it would take 15 minutes to get a boiled egg from where the children were in the nursery from the kitchen so you could sort of boil the egg en route and all that kind of weird thing you know that kind of space and luxury and a good escapist read a good sort of that was quite early on in lockdown that was the sort of sort of ease myself in gently and then I read Kindred by Octavia Butler, who I didn't, I knew about, but I didn't, I'd never read her stuff. And I actually had, I was at a historical fiction conference in Pasadena a few years ago, and they have her archive and all her, her, her kind of written manifestations about how she was going to be a writer. And, you know, she was a young black girl in Pasadena and intelligent and hungry for knowledge and hungry to do all these things. And she did do them. And it, you know, it's, it's, it's a, fantastic biography although she died too young and then uh i i didn't you know i'd never read anything and then my uh, friend said you should try it it's um it's more sort of she did a kind of a lot of uh, time travel and sci-fi and uh it's a story about a woman in the 70s a black woman who is connected to this white man in the uh, 17th century, I think it is, um, maybe early 18th, who is a slave owner, plantation owner, and he is her ancestor because of his raping and, uh, you know, pillage of, of his, his property, his slave. And it's her job to save him. She travels back in time to save him in order to actually live herself in the 20th century. And it's this... I suppose, uh, philosophical inquiry into the interconnectedness, hence it being called kindred of the whites in America and the blacks in America. You know, I've read a couple of other novels set on plantations, uh, The Book of Night Women by Marlon James, which is one of my favourite books, and The Long Song and uh, a, few, a couple of others. But this one is so interesting because it brings the morality and the physicality and the, brut- and, and the brutality of, of the slave system, the sort of holocaust that was slavery, into the 20th century. And she's, she travels back in time, comes back into her flat in, in California and has to take paracetamol for the whip marks on her back and all of that sort of stuff. It's, it's extremely clever. And, you know, there's a fear that she's going to get trapped in the past as well, both literally and metaphorically speaking so that was a good one I mean, I'm ashamed to say I've never read any Octavia Butler I think partly because I fear the the science fiction element um but does right. it yeah it sounds like it's much more of a, a human story than that and I'm really curious yeah. about how she Octavia Butler as a writer and also that character sort of dealt with a really brilliant and complex idea of saving a person who seems unsavable, whose mm-hmm. role has been right. so... He's, and he is awful in the book. You're like, oh, good God. Yeah, that, that's the question she asks. Like, she has the opportunity to let him die. But if she lets him die, then she won't be born. I think perhaps maybe one of her overarching messages in the book is that not that he is a victim of the system, he is a huge beneficiary of the system, but that when you have this which was essentially, well, a proto-capitalist or a capitalist system where the dollar is king and the white man is at the top of the pile. Behaviour morphs. And I think the best books that deal with the history and legacy of slavery shows the moral compromises that both whites, not so much the black characters, but also some of them as well, enter into 
in order to survive, doing things that they didn't necessarily think they'd end up doing, you know, wouldn't want to do maybe in a different situation. Have you read uh, Corrigidura by Gail Jones? I read it just no. before lockdown and yeah. it's great. It's arresting. It really, it's one of those books that just like propels you and propels you. You'll have to get, get me the name again because... Uh, I need to get my pen and paper. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so <that's> <laughs> I know that um, the Gail Jones is for the what? It's G-A-Y-L Jones. There's two others that I've read that have kind of stuck with me. Um, Motherhood by Sheila Hetty. Um, yeah, have you read it? No. And it, I think that the Margate Bookshop currently have a copy for me. And I have been attempting to read that book for about five years. Me too. Exactly the same. Like, I, it's kind of like the Venn diagram of motherhood creativity because the narrator is a woman uh who's a, sorry the narrator is a writer as as well as a woman she can be both um and <laughs> sure. yeah, she, it's it's a miracle um it's a it's and for some reason like I've been putting it off and I knew I knew it was kind of like perfect for me like I love that kind of thing it's it's that quite um not common, that's not the right word, but familiar idea that the narrator is, sounds very similar to Sheila Hetty herself. Sheila, that the narrator's boyfriend is the same name as her boyfriend in real life. And, you know, the inquiry into whether or not to become a mother is obviously one close to her heart. So, so. we're in the realms of autofiction. Yes, I, I, I believe so. It's one of the most generous books I've ever read about this topic to all women, women who are mothers, women who don't want to be mothers, women who want to be mothers but who aren't and she has this idea of the not not mother and how we're all the not not mother because some are not mothers and some are not not mothers and it took me a while to get my head around it but she says you know we sort of hang on these states and use them as sort of sticks to beat each other with she has this very loving very honest uh, relationship with her partner uh, who already has a child a daughter and he has said to her it's got to be your choice. I'd be happy not to have any more children. So she goes on this kind of philosophical journey about whether or not she should. But what for me was so powerful about it was the loving way with which she wrote about her creativity, her need to write, her books, her work, the nurture of that, her purpose on this planet, which was just so beautifully, tenderly written and not in a kind of saccharine way, but just in a a, a, a way that I felt she really held its worth. And the other thing that's so brilliant about it is as her role as a daughter, because she even asks, should I be a daughter rather than a mother? Is that my job on this planet? And it's partly informed by the fact that on her mother's side, they are all Holocaust survivors. So there's that perhaps need to regenerate or to do very, very well to succeed um, that her mother instilled in her and has kind of made their relationship at times very fractious, but also has meant that they have a very deep understanding of each other. So it, I, I found it deeply moving and I'm not a page bender, like on the corners of pages, but that is my one book. Of, I have a little chest of drawers next to my bed, which is all the special books. <laughs> and motherhood has gone on on that one because I was like, Sheila, you really hit that one out of the park there. I might have to stop this interview, run down to the bookshop and hammer on the window and be like, <laughs> I need it now. Honestly, every book you've talked about so far, I am sold. <laughs> Were you ever um, a bookseller? I know that you have been an actor and... Yeah. No, I have never, I've never flogged a book, but my partner did. He was a bookseller. Ah, which books has he sold to you on recommendation? Is he a good recommender of books? He's a great recommender. So one of his sort of flirting offerings was that I thought he thought that I would really like Fates and Furies by Lauren Groff. And when someone recommends you a book that you don't know so well, and like imagine like you're just like, dude, what, why, why have you suggested this terrible novel that I hate? But actually, I was like, oh, this is a really good book, um, super good. And I was like, oh, and I really like. He has a lot of. He's a very comprehensive reader. He will read across the board like sci-fi fantasy but also he has very literary taste as well and non-fiction he's very curious and 
he's kind of made me kind of open my horizons a bit, hence probably picking up Kindred by Octavia Butler. Um, so yeah, he's wooed me with fits and furies. Are you living together? And if so, do you have to share book space? Do you have any separate <laughs> bookshelves or is it? Yeah, we've been together four years uh, in the same, under the same roof. But you know, he has his own um, books in piles by his bed. <laughs> they have not intermingled <laughs> there's a shelf behind the a chair where it's like we're starting to like breed <laughs> I was wondering if it's maybe like you know French women saying always lock the bathroom door and maintain the mystery um, I wanted to go back to um, motherhood and what you're saying about creativity and the very affirming way it sounds like Sheila Haiti and the character of Sheila talk about that and live that and I think it's really interesting how you talk about art and being the creator in your own novels and that being something that can sort of bring joy and pain and light and complication. Did you feel any differently about writing having read Motherhood? I felt more proud of what I do actually. I think you know one sense of self-worth or the good work one's doing fluctuates Um, but when there are certain passages in that book which she just clarifies um, how important it is and how it it's not just for her a hobby (laughs) and it's her way of making sense of the world and it's her offering and I think you know maybe two years ago I was quite resistant to the kind of language that um, you know people use oh your book baby or you know talking about pushing out a book or but I have to say the the longer I sat with that and the more I thought about my work and and the way I think about my books and the way I talk about them unconsciously I do talk about them in a quite nurturing sense and a child that you might have physically is as much an imagined creation you have an idea of a child that you're going to have in your mind and then they're born and they're not that And I think that's actually a similar parallel to writing a book. You have a perfect book in your mind. And then, of course, you're faced with reality and an unknowability as well. And the idea that we as writers, we do gestate our ideas and we have to put a lot of time and effort into them. And then once they're written and they're born and they're put out into the world and they have to live in the world with other people and be cared for by other people they are we can't look after them and of course I accept that that metaphor is you know it's not the same as like having to feed clothes and <laughs> educate a child obviously I'm you know but the the internal care and thought and value I think I have realized you know the, the way I talk about my, my books is similar to how i I hear women talking about their babies. (laughs) Well, I don't know if this sort of strikes any kind of chord, but we interviewed uh, Tracy Chevalier and she's really great. And obviously she is, you know, as you are, has been sort of immensely and consistently successful over a long period of time. But perhaps, I don't know if you feel this way about your work or not, but having one like stratospheric mega 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 book that's just this sort of eclipsing defining thing and obviously for her it was um the girl the pearl earring and she was really interesting and I thought really generous about not just that book but about the people who love it and I think people love it like they love One Direction or like they love (laughs) the Mona Lisa you know she seemed really genuinely happy to just relinquish that it's like lots of people want to own that book and I'm happy to let them have it yeah no and I think I that definitely resonates that sense of collective ownership and particularly with the miniatures for me I I feel I'm I'm always struck when people you know they 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 do take it into their hearts and it's a book that I think if you do like it or you do love it it's 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 passionately it's as a fan you know and um and that's but that's the kind of magic of the contract I think you have with a reader you don't know them you never meet them and for me well you do sometimes obviously but I mean generally they kind of complete the book for you on their own and they take it into their psyche their imagination their heart and the characters populate their mind I mean it's such a bonkers concept when you think of it that you know on paper you then kind of can colonise someone's mind. Are there any books that you feel as though your reading has been almost unique or books that have moved you in such a way that you feel 
of that kind of intimacy with them? I think those kind of books for me, probably more when I was younger. I think if you get those books in maybe before the age of about 12, mm. you recalibrate your mind when your mind is that plastic and sponge-like. So I think there are a few and I think, you know, they're, they're probably quite common. Um, you know, Jane Eyre, Rebecca by Du Maurier, Matilda by Roald Dahl, The Go-Between by L.P. Hartley, Pride and Prejudice. These were books that, you know, big adult titles that I took off the shelves when I was about 11, 12. And there's a big difference, I think, between being 12 and even being 15. Mm. There are books, obviously, and I'm 37, like there are obviously books since then that have struck me, like Cat's Eye by Atwood, which I read when I was 16. We, it was a set text for A-level. Certain poets, Tom Garn. Um, oh my God, I love you know, Tom Garn. Yeah, like he wrote one of my favourite poems. By that age, 16, 17, you're, you're really honing your critical abilities. And you start to think, oh, my God, like, that's a really phenomenal way of expressing that idea. But those books that you read when you're younger, they kind of sort of enter your bloodstream in a different way. Um, and you do feel an, you know, an immediate resurrection of the Red Room in Jane Eyre that you pictured when you were 11. So you're now 37 and you're reading it. And Jane is still the same age. And Charlotte Bronte's been dead for 200 years or whatever. So it's it's it's. um it's a phenomenon really a feeling as much as a reading um yeah to be i don't want to say lowbrow but um i recently read (laughs) ballet shoes um found a really beautiful edition of ballet shoes at crofton bookshop which i strongly recommend if you're in um southeast london and looking for a bargain but you know i read that book a lot and i've only recently realized that nell stretfield it's like um Pony books are really for girls who don't have horses and ponies. If you're properly horsey, <laughs> you are out with your horses. There's lots of wishful thinking in, you know, Jill's Gymkhana and things. And it's it's the same. There are lots of, um, you know, that sort of this idea of kind of the stage school kid. I think mm. that Nell Stratfield speaks to lots of children who never quite got that far. When I was a kid, it seemed so, you know, triumphant. Yeah, yeah. And also very plausible, like... That's the thing, I think, especially when you're a child, you, you, you know, you read a story like that, which has so many fantastical fairy tale elements. The agent turning up is like the god fairy godmother. Age 35, though, I got to the end and I cried and cried and cried. And I just saw these sisters and this family being torn apart and these little mm. girls making these terrifying, very adult compromises. But it's also, you know, an emotional read because they're all still there in that perpetual motion like and you're older and you're you know I always find that it's like you find yourself again when you read those old stories that are so familiar to you and in a way like they, they don't die and it's it's very it sounds silly to say but they're just always on a sort of loop certain books for people just remain like that kind of comfort but also very emotional like melancholic because it's you know sometimes the best books are the ones that there is escapism but you're almost escaping to somewhere unreachable. Mm. So it's plunging into a, a, a foreign world that you can never get to, but actually by the act of reading, you are there. It's paradox and memory is like that and getting older is like that when you think of your past life. And yeah. perhaps, you know, that's it, that every time, you know, reading it as a child, I was like, and, you know, and the agent will come for me and it's all going to be, and I yeah. sort of, and realising how far away I am Obviously, I am no further away from that happening because it was never remotely possible. But so far from the idea, I guess that the, yeah. it's the walls between the book and reality get thicker maybe on every reread. Um, yeah, that's yeah, that's very true. And sometimes you can be a bit scared to reread an old favourite because even though I've just said, yes, you know, you revisit it and you, it's all still there for you there can be times when you go it's like watching another movie that you've loved and then you go back to it and you're like why did I think this was good this is terrible and it's such a shame because you destroyed your eight-year-old fantasy of it but equally yes you can with every reread it can you can feel more and more distant but I my book like that was probably Matilda by Dahl and I remember staring at pencils trying to make them levitate and I kind of still think that I could probably levitate a pencil 
Like that's the weird thing. Like obviously rationally, I know I can't, but then there's some that that little six-year-old girl, Jessie, who read that in 1988, is still there in me. Um, it lit within me a real lust for revenge, did Matilda. <laughs> exactly. I even said to my, you know, I wanted to try cornflakes because Matilda was eating them. And it's that, it's like you just said, that synthesis between reality and fiction and is very porous when you're little. And, you know, I've written uh, one children's book, The Restless Girls, and that's been so gratifying as an author to do events with children um, because it speaks to my imaginative willingness um, when they just take it they accept it they go with it they make it their own it's so gorgeous to witness whereas obviously when you're an adult rationality and cynicism and fatigue and <laughs> oh yes the fatigue god the best things um you know kick in and you don't have that same immediate immersion in a world where everything is you know the stakes are genuinely high or you know pigs really can talk and all of that things that you, you you believe when you're little. I mean, I imagine at those events, I'm guessing that children are a lot less inhibited and much more direct. What is there any sort of active element that you do beyond reading? Oh yeah, like so. The Restless Girls. Um, part of the plot of the Restless Girls was that the girls descend a staircase into a underground world of um, three forests of gold, silver, and diamonds, and then they find the Tree Palace where there's a jazz band playing, and so. I invited them to sort of make their own fantasy world and what was in it, how did we get to it, what kind of foods were available. You know, we just built as a group a whole world and it was just so wonderful to sort of have them all shout out ideas and stuff and nobody asked me, what's your writing process like? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you guys. You can ask me what my favourite cheese is, um, whether I have a boyfriend. It was totally so much more fun. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. We'll be back to Jessie soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week, The Dutch House by Anne Patchett. It's 1950-something. On the east coast of America, and Maeve and Danny are growing up in the grandest house on the block. Their father is distant, their mother has disappeared, but they're happy enough. When their father remarries, their old life starts to slip away from under them and they lose the home they have loved and hated, a home that keeps them under its spell. I loved this book like I love A Prayer for Owen Meany. It's lived on my pile for over a year and I've been feeling obliged to read it for some time and I was very afraid it was going to be a little bit dry and worthy and quite important. I was so wrong. It's juicy, it's urgent, it's engaging. It's about family dynamics at their most layered and brittle. I wish I could tell you precisely why I loved it so much. The best I can do is to say that I felt a little bit brokenhearted when I finished the last page and I had to live in the real world and not the Conroy's imaginary one. 
The Dutch House by Anne Patchett is published by Bloomsbury and out now. Now, back to Jessie. Well, that does remind me, though, that when, as a young reader, and still, there is nothing I loved more than a really good food description. Oh, in a, yeah. And actually, yeah. that's something that hasn't changed with Bad Issues, is given it's, you know, they're very, very concerned about money. The, they still seem to eat very, very well. Um, yeah. I've just yeah. read, and I think it's coming out in a couple of weeks, uh, V for Victory by Lissa Evans, which is... Oh, I've heard that I should read Lissa Evans. Like, everyone's saying to me, read her. I need to read her. And I was just thinking there's such a brilliant description of food at the end, and it's a kind of real, like, wartime, you know, treats are coming, and uh, oh. it was very, very pleasing to... She consume. Well, that actually reminds me because the friend who recommended Lissa to me also recommended Eva Ribbotson's Adult. She keeps uh, coming up. They've just been reissued, I believe. Up. Yeah. And so I, uh, in lockdown, I read The Secret Countess, which you reminded me of it because of the food. And again, there's this, you know, it's a, there is privation. It's after the uh, First World War, but they still managed to eat <laughs> kings because again, it's that fantasy fantastical element that um I think is always appealing to people that never stops I don't think but just um talking about that and because I suppose now there's all you know lots of concerns about you know what we're eating and how much of it we're eating what we should all weigh and you know the coronavirus and stuff mm. I read um in one big binge um all the Catholic Chronicles in lockdown <laughs> I was saying and, that, you know, they're not atypical. There are lots of books set around that time about a certain class of people that have a very similar sort of pattern. Mm. Like, All they did was eat. There was an element of, of wish fulfillment that wasn't, you know, it's not like mass observation. <laughs> but every, everyone had 4,000 calories a day in wartime and they were fine. Yeah. And also the alcohol consumption. Yes. Like, what was going on with that? Like so much whiskey, wine, champagne before 10 a.m.? People must have been lunatics. Well, that was uh, going right back to the beginning in Princess Margaret. My favourite detail was her day of coffee and papers and a lot of vodka and orange and a blow dry yeah. and a swim and another blow dry and a boozy lunch and a lie down and cocktails and then dinner. Incredible. I mean, she just must have been buzzed all the time. I just constant topping up of a, a certain level. I'm not much of a drinker, so I, I notice it in books when, you know, I just finished um, Saturday Lunch with the Brownings, the uh, short story collection of Penelope Mortimer for the third time. It's so good. Actually, that was another book that my partner wooed me with as a birthday present. So I, um, I got recommended by Lucy Scholes, the critic that I should give um, her short stories ago. I've read her novels, her early novels and loved them. And uh, so um, my partner got me a paperback because it was just it was out of print. And uh, there was this fantastic story in it called Little Mrs. Perkins about this woman who's in the maternity ward next to the narrator. And it's all touch and go about whether the baby's going to make it. And they're all like, oh, Mrs. Perkins, we're so sorry. You know, she's like, oh, I'm so sad, you know, but hopefully we will get to go to Tenerife. So there's a, a holiday that she wants to go to Tenerife and her husband's saying, well, you have to stay and do bed rest because, you know, you're in a fragile state. As soon as the nurses and the, the husband goes away, this woman starts cycling her legs really hard in the air. And the narrator realizes she's trying to induce an abortion. And um, I got to the page where like the narrator's going to find out what happens and the pages were missing. <gasps> no, I need to know what happened to little Mrs. Perkins. And it's out so, of print. <laughs> it's out of print. And this, this one copy I've got, got no pages in it. So anyway, he sourced a first edition. So that was a, a, just going back to his good. Thoroughly approve of this man. Yeah, he gets 10 out of 10. But anyway, in all of her stories, I mean, Mortimer was a big drinker. I think a lot of people were like, we're talking about 50, 60. The amount of whiskey these people knock back, like three whiskeys before he then goes out to the pub. I'm just like, I would be, I would be green. I would be rolling on the floor. Also, you can't write when you're drinking, I don't think. Like, it's just, the brain just fizzles away. But It's taken me a really long time to, to figure that out. Um, I mean, again, <laughs> back, to, um, back to my very highbrow literary books. I love Julie Cooper very much in her books. I, I would never have known that day. <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret. Don't tell no one. Keep it very low. No, I love it. I love that you're so, you know, supportive of <laughs> it. It's 
<laughs> she is the best. Her books are so boozy. And I think oh, it has taken me, honestly, until the age of 35, which I am now to be like, it's a book. I can't, it's not normal to oh, be able shit. to drink that much alcohol and function. I actually function an awful lot better when I stay clear. <laughs> But yeah. it's, it's, I suppose as, as sad as um, knowing that I'm not going to be one of the Fossil Sisters, as sad as I can't be a sort of a, a fabulous, you know, career no, drinker. I think you're better off for it. I mean, I when I wrote The Muse, which is my second novel, there's a character in it, Marjorie Quick, who drinks gin and tonics and cocktail. And I definitely, it's a sort of wish fulfillment that, you know, to have someone who can remain icy calm and you know, debonair and full of quips whilst, you know, three sheets to the wind. Um, I think novelists like it just as much as they like writing about food. Maybe, I don't know whether it's more women than men. I, 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 I do tend to read more women writers anyway. So I don't, I don't, except for, of course, like the St. Aubin, the, the Melrose, of course, which I mean, in terms of debauchery, they are like off the scale. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's easier in books, I think, to have people drink to excess and eat to excess and not ever have gas or hu- like hungover. That's it. No one's reaching for emoji. No. One's... No. <laughs> no. Tiny no. Sick in the no. People drink loads and then get up and do, yes, there are obviously like hangovers in novels and stuff, but like most of the time they just carry on. I'm like, these people's, I just, these people's livers, just terrible. I've only read the first three um, Patrick Melrose books and I did, I loved, I thought the second one was, I thought they were all, uh, the first and second ones were just brutal and amazing. And the third one is really, really good. But that the second one in his description of being at that lunch, is it with like with oh, friends and fathers and they're all drinking huge Bloody Marys? Yeah. And he's like, well, if I take all of this heroin now, I won't, have to go back and have some later my own experience there is nil but I have a feeling that is very much not how heroin works but then the third one with that book being a little bit of an ordeal and quite you know very bitchy and funny and well written but still a bit of a struggle I'm like oh because it's all it's that party in real time and it's like that's the hell of being a sober person at an out of control party that's what the book is yeah that is so true it's so true that's really well put and it's I think it's really hard to do, to write drunk. I, I mean, um, to put drunkenness in novels. Um, it's very hard to write drunk full stop, but to actually depict it, actually one of my favourite, favourite books is Lucky Jim by Kingsley Amis, which is one of the first books I ever read that made me actually laugh out loud. Um, not that I'm a humorless person, but just, you know, that really made me lol. And uh, he does people at parties and drunkenness and hangovers really well in that book just the kind of horrendousness of it when you know you're at a social gathering you don't want to be at or whether you were or you feel rancid the next day but then that's quite glamorous though it's it's still sort of making it humorous and a bit good old boys not not you know the sordid reality of it that you wake up and shake yourself down and just you know and go back out again the next day yeah go to the pub yeah. I don't think I've ever read Lucky Jim. It's one of those books that I think I've read, but I've actually read a lot of Martin Amos, and that does not mean I've automatically read his dad. <laughs> I, I've it doesn't work that way. I've only read his dad, Kingsley, and I've only read that one. Um, but there's a scene where he like makes faces behind his hand, and it sounds so basic, but it's just, I don't know. I was, you know, 21 or two, and I picked it up, and I just... I, I've not read many comic novels. I think it's a very hard skill. And very good character. Is something so thrilling when it happens and it does make you laugh and you think, this is allowed in a book? I know. Have you read um, Pre-Study? Yes, I, I loved that book. <gasps> that is one of the funniest books I've ever read. Like, I was wheezing. She is a genius. But it's just her mum is the star and the comic genius yeah. of the book. Yeah. It's dazzling. Even when you, I remember reading it and reading my partner bits out loud, which can be really annoying when people do that. But I was like, no, 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 you have to hear this. And and he was laughing too, because even though he didn't know anything other than the passage, because she just has a, a great turn of phrase and a great way of setting up the scene. David Sedaris is good for that as well, obviously. It's what is it with Americans? They're so good at that. The droll. I'm reading at the moment um, the letters of E.B. White. It's enormous. Um, and I'm making very slow progress. It's not sort of his essays or his, just his account of his work and his life and his doings. He's just started at the 
New Yorker. And he does have a real, kind of, almost, I suppose, a, a puterish. Like he's no misanthrope. He's a very cheerful and happy man. Yeah. But just always looking out for things that are a bit kind of weird or interesting or that, you know, mm. observing and, you know, having sort of both eyes, I think, really looking out at the world and seeing how mm-hmm. how much nonsense surrounds us all. Yeah, I think it must be hard to be that aware of people's foibles and flaws because it must mean that you're aware of your own as well <laughs> and to write it and you know there's always the, the cliche that you know comics are quite morose or sad people or you know they can sense the dark side they always say don't they like if you've got friends in a play like don't don't come round backstage and think that they're all going to go to the pub with you if they've just all been in a comedy but if they've all just been in a tragedy they'll all you know everyone will be high spirited and wanting to party. <laughs> you know like let's just go to the fun side of things yeah whereas being comic and sensing humor and everything I, I think you always have to acknowledge the the underside of it really I'd like to think that it's sort of comforting to just know that everyone and everything is ridiculous yeah I mean I think that as I kind of like move through my career, my one of my ambitions or aims is to sort of write characters who are flawed and contradictory. I think when you're younger, you know, as a child, the sort of stories you write, you write archetypes or, or, or you actually don't. And, you know, you have characters who just do all kinds of things that contradict each other and there's no sense. And then you go through a phase of like trying to make everything make sense. And then I think the great skill is to create characters who do not bad things, but things that maybe leave a bad taste in your mouth as the reader, but then you kind of are um, put in a really difficult position morally because you still like them or you're rooting for them or um, or someone lets you down in a book, but then they redeem themselves and then they do something bad again. You know, that 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 is um, the reality of life, right? Like we, we are so flawed and incomplete and a con- constant works in progress until the day we die trying to capture that on the page is something I really aim to do <laughs> constantly. I was thinking a lot about um, Elise in um, The Confession. That book is full of those people, but, you know, to have someone that you do feel, or I felt very, very tenderly towards and mm. frustrated by and disappointed in, but also I was sort of, you know, reaching for her. Mm. Who were the characters that you feel morally challenged or compromised by? Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, I'm just trying to think, like, a recent book where I think that's been achieved really well is um, Summer Water by Sarah Moss. She's, a, I think, a very gifted novelist. I loved Ghost Wall. The premise of Summer Water is it's all over one day at a Scottish Highland holiday camp. And there are a lot of Brits there. Sorry, a lot of English there. And there's a kind of tension between the Scots and the English and... um, some more recently arrived Eastern Europeans as well. But the first chapter is a middle-aged woman, mother of two, I believe, and her slightly layabout husband is still asleep in the cabin and she's on a long run. And she's not a likable person always, but certain things she says in her inner monologue, alluding to her husband, you do feel immediately sympathetic and then she'll remove that again. And that's like within a few pages. Um, so I found that really interesting. And I, I think, again, it's that confidence of an older writer to do that, to, to know that she's um, in control. Yeah. I can't have my head think of, of others, but I mean, obviously, like, oh, and not all I can. Now I said that. Somebody like um, Olive Kittredge. Yes, um, yes, 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 yes. That's a perfect example, I think. Just like majestic cruelty of her thoughts, her pettinesses, and then her generosity to people. It's just like, how the hell does Elizabeth Strout do that? I can't remember <laughs> if it's in Olive Kitteridge or Olive again. It's either her, her new daughter-in-law or her daughter-in-law-to-be. Oh, God, and yeah. Olive's just so pissed off with her and doesn't really know what. It's a general feeling of annoyance. And she just hides a shoe in her handbag. And I thought the pettiness and daftness of that was so funny and so sort of really you know because I I think we've all felt like that haven't we well we just so mad by someone like what will drive you demented and also 
she feels like that about her son. Like the things she thinks about her son, it's so rare to see a woman who will think such uncharitable thoughts and put them, you know, and express them for our benefit. Like it's, it's very powerful when, it, when a novelist is gifted as Strap does it. Yeah, it's like, oh God. And understands, you know, the fact that there's a sort of 13 year old girl still stuck in her body somewhere who wants to hide a shoe in a handbag because she's jealous. She's jealous. Like, you know, she's being ousted and she's not, she doesn't feel in control of things and she thinks other people are just sort of below her or like, you know, letting her down. It's funny, yeah. isn't it? Because when we talk about things being gritty, I think we imagine a sort of, I don't know, like Brookside at its most brooding or, you know, really sort of like bleak and horrible. But I think grittiness should be just that your life being the sort of like low level irritants all the time just a sort of nothing is awful but there's a sort of constant rising of friction that you can't quite shake off yeah but that's so hard to write and I think doing kind of domestic ennui or petty cruelties or you know shallow behaviors making them meaningful or making them universal is a very difficult thing to do. And I think that's probably why so many books, and you know, don't get me wrong, I love operatic, melodramatic, theatrical books and characters who are larger than life and scenarios that are unlikely and yet feel likely because they're between the boards of a book. But the novelists who I admire the most probably are the most economic novelists like Straub or Penelope Mortimer um, you know, these people who can just like distill that kind of grittiness, which is so familiar and is not about, you know, dr- drama in the courtroom or whatever. I really loved Expectation by Anna Hope for that. And oh, I haven't read it. It's about the tensions in the sort of relationship between three different women and that they are all quite ordinary. You know, these women, and it's to take an archetype and something that's often, you know, dismissed and made two-dimensional and really, really realise that and make that worthy of our attention as readers. I think it's masterful. Well, I definitely need to pick that one up then because I, I love that kind of elevation of, of the, you know, particularly feminine experience, I suppose, that, you know, does, as you say, get reduced. And I think it's happening more and more that the lived experience of women is being treated very seriously as art which I think the male experience has always been the default universal experience, you know, we're very good ventriloquists, I think, as women growing up with the school syllabuses and all of that. Mm. But I think that is changing. And, you know, obviously vanguards of that um, novelist, but the fact that, you know, Anna Hope is a contemporary novelist and doing that, that's a sign, I think. Oh, Jesse, I could talk books to you all night. <laughs> I did want to ask for your partner, um, what are the books that you have um, given him as gifts or recommendations? Now I'm going to look like the, the worst girlfriend ever. What is it? Well, one of the things was like, because he is, was a bookseller, like I didn't really buy him any books because, uh, well, he had the discount. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm just trying to think, like, what books have I bought him? One book that I love to give people um, is What I Loved by Siri Husbett. God, I love that book. (laughs) Oh, good. Good. I'm glad you do. It was given to me as a gift many moons ago. And I knew nothing about her or her background. And it it was a sucker punch of a book. And um, I think it's one of the most beautiful books. And... Um, I'm really glad you like it. I'd got this absolutely misguided idea from the cover and the title. It was going to be a sort of like, you know, an 800 page lamentation on something which didn't interest me at all. I'm like, oh, 80s New York and drugs. <laughs> Get in my face. Like these strange sons who kind of, you know, one goes one route and obviously and the other and, and, and the, yeah, exactly. And the kind of art world and this, what I loved about it is, wow. Was what I loved about what I loved. <laughs> <laughs> what I loved about what I loved was the construction of this artist and like she really went to town she did all the background and like she is such a formidable person yes. like so brainy like she has this background in psychology as well and like you just know she, anything she sort of turns her hand to she like ends up on the board of trustees for something <laughs> She's an extraordinary person and uh, I've read a few of her books but what I loved is definitely 
my favorite and it's again like what we were saying earlier it's that the feeling like the way you react to that like you kind of clutched your heart <laughs> it's the same it's a very moving book but because um before I read it I had this really like grubby sordid low-level obsession with Michael Ailig and that whole insane story about party oh, monster yeah. and the sort of the the drug murder stunt and Angel Mendez yeah well it's also interesting because I mean obviously I mean her husband is Paul Auster as well who's like somebody who's always like dealt with the whole like metafiction stuff and you know definitely from I think from a sort of tradition from Borges and and I think she is seems to be quite interested in that as well mm. like interplay between fiction and reality and but I think she 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 does it very differently to Paul Auster and I you know kind of loathe to even like bring him in as a but he is a I, I can only imagine like imagine being in a marriage like that like god I don't think I'd like it like I can be uh, in a partnership with a bookseller maybe not a book writer <laughs> too, too much um but I, I can't imagine you know how much they've probably influenced each other as well as novelists I'd just like to see one breakfast one breakfast I'd have breakfast with Paul also but dinner with Siri Husper oh that's a good I like that I was just thinking I just want to watch them secretly at breakfast together fighting over an espresso yeah probably like pulling the New York Times between each other to see who's had like a better review. They're probably eating cornflakes and wanting to be like Matilda. Yeah, like Paul Orser's probably there, like staring at a pencil, like (laughs) I can Uh, levitate the spoon. (laughs) You never know. Huge thanks to Jesse, and if you haven't read the confession yet, go, go, go now. You need to meet Constance immediately. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I've been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at Booked. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would make my day if you left us a five-star review. And it helps new listeners to find the podcast. I leave you with this from Anne Lamott. I know some very great writers, writers you love, who write beautifully and have made a great deal of money. And not one of them sits down routinely feeling wildly enthusiastic and confident. Not one of them writes elegant first drafts. See you next time. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.